Hello, and welcome back to United for Peace, episode 2.1, Under the Shadow of War. Welcome back. Last time, we concluded our series on the UN operation in the Congo, which was the second ever armed UN peacekeeping mission. Well, today, we are going to start unraveling the plot of the first ever armed UN peacekeeping mission, the first United Nations Emergency Force. Now, unlike the series on Onuk, which was essentially a war documentary, the United Nations Emergency Force is going to play out a lot more like a political drama. There wasn't a whole lot of fighting during the operation, but there was a lot of political drama and politicking, extremely fraught with danger and even the risk of a third world war. So, I hope you're not expecting too much talk about tanks and guns and mortars, etc. But, if you care at all about political drama and possible world war tensions, you've come to the right place. Yes, it may seem odd that I flipped the first and second. However, Onuk is a fascinating and huge operation, which also happens to neatly demonstrate to the extreme the strengths and limitations of armed peacekeeping missions. However, now I want to go back to the beginning when the United Nations first realized that it has a tool somewhere between pure diplomacy and pure force for stabilizing international peace and security. The story of how and why the United Nations put together the first emergency force explains a lot about the true nature and purpose of the United Nations. Additionally, exploring the character of this first armed peacekeeping mission is crucial to understanding the organization and its key players' mindset when approaching sensitive security situations. So, let us now explore how and why the UN adopted such a tool. It all goes back to the Suez Crisis of 1956, when the UK, France, and Israel invaded Egypt. Why did they invade Egypt? Well, they all had some grievance against Egypt, and all thought that a coordinated military strike would quickly relieve them. The UK and France had one big, obvious grievance. On July 29, 1956, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser declared that Egypt would nationalize the Suez Canal Company, taking control of all its assets. The UK government itself owned 44% of shares of the Suez Canal Company, and French private investors owned a further 25% of this previous owner-operator's shares. Now, the Suez Canal Company had a concession which granted it legal ownership and operation rights to the canal, and this concession had a legally binding expiration date of November 17, 1968, about 14 years later. So, although President Nasser promised that shareholders would be compensated for the seizure of the company's assets, the British government and a lot of French people were suddenly out of a very lucrative investment. Furthermore, the UK and France were supremely spooked by this premature termination of the canal company's concession. After all, it was a legally binding international agreement, although one could say it was made under duress, and all of Western Europe depended on the oil transiting from the Middle East through the canal. And Israel? Well, Israel had some grievances against Egypt as well, although Israel's grievances require a bit more backstory. See, Egypt and Israel were still technically in a state of war following the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. An armistice had halted open conflict, 
but a formal peace settlement was never signed. As such, certain hostile circumstances still defined the Israeli-Egyptian relationship. Egypt blockaded Israeli shipping in the Suez Canal and the Gulf of Aqaba, a body of water connecting Israel to the Red Sea, which then feeds into the Indian Ocean. Not a lot of people realize that Israel, in fact, has a southern coast. This blockade hampered Israel's economy greatly. Beyond this, Israel frequently experienced raids from Fedayeen striking from Egyptian territory. This inflicted some degree of terror upon Israel and prompted harsh reprisals on the people, again striking from Egyptian territory. This then inflamed anti-Israeli sentiment in Egypt. In fact, the elimination of Fedayeen bases was the decided goal of Israel's invasion of Egypt in 1956. If you are familiar with 20th century Middle Eastern history, then you are probably aware of this, but I am going to lay out the fundamental source of tension between Israel and its neighbors, namely Egypt. As I am writing this in mid-2022, Arab states including Egypt have moved towards normalizing relations with Israel, so I am going to be using past tense for much of this. Keep in mind, however, that the situation with Israel and its neighbors is still not perfect. The Egyptian position, shared with the other Arab states, was that Israel is a conquering colonial state, which had unlawfully scattered many now-impoverished Palestinians, and would surely keep expanding to welcome home all the world's quote-unquote exiles. And by exiles, here we mean the entirety of the Jewish diaspora. As this refers to the entire Jewish diaspora, this includes people who are literally centuries and even over a millennium removed from their most recent ancestors to actually live in modern-day Israel. This lends itself to the Arab position that displacing the people who currently inhabit the land and whose ancestors have resided there for the last several centuries is completely unjustified. On the flip side, the Israeli position was, and still is, that the Jewish people had faced discrimination and the worst imaginable atrocities for no good reason basically wherever they went, and so it just made sense for them to come home in a shared country whose first duty would be to protect Jews. And of course, that the Arab states were stubborn for refusing to allow even this basic decency. I am going to take no side here on the show. I do have an opinion about the whole situation, but this is a show about UN peacekeeping, not my own political views. I hope you will all understand, and take no offense at my presenting both sides as I have. Not to be that guy, but I think both sides have decent points. Now, since Egypt and Israel signed an armistice in 1949, but never formally declared peace, Egypt maintained certain rights of belligerence. The most notable of these were rights of search and seizure of maritime vessels bound for Israel. Israel complained to the Security Council many times about Egypt's draconian restrictions harming them, and the Security Council passed Security Council Resolution 95 on September 1st, 1951, calling upon Egypt to terminate restrictions on passage through the Suez Canal, except what is necessary for the safety of the canal itself, or to maintain compliance with international conventions in force. The resolution noted the 12th of July 1951 report of the Chief of Staff of the UN Truce Supervision Organization. This report concluded that, 
quote, action taken by Egyptian authorities in interfering with passage of goods destined for Israel through the Suez Canal must be considered an aggressive action, end quote. But Egypt just went, duh, we are still in a state of war, we just agreed to stop throwing soldiers at each other. Although, soldiers still seem to throw themselves against each other anyway sometimes. Many delegates of the Council condemned Egypt in 1954 because of non-compliance with Security Council Resolution 95, but nothing really changed. So, there's the beef between Israel and Egypt up to 1956. Although I said Israel had conspired with the UK and France to provide the pretext for the latter two states to occupy the Suez Canal zone, aforementioned tensions already plausibly risked war. Indeed, the USA called for a Security Council meeting on March 20, 1956, to raise the issue of compliance with the 1949 armistice agreement between Israel and Egypt. Dag Hammarskjöld was asked to survey the compliance situation, which the Secretary General interpreted as asking to re-establish compliance. See, between 1949 and this time, literally hundreds of violations had occurred, often involving exchanges of fire. The international community feared that events were linking up in a chain reaction heading towards war. Besides this, international attitudes about the situation in the Middle East took a few different forms and could lead to a number of different confrontations jeopardizing international stability. All great powers, the superpowers included, tried to chum it up with the Arab states since it controlled the Suez Canal and the world's largest oil supplies collectively. The UK, for its part, withdrew all armed garrisons it had in the Suez Canal Zone and publicly supported Arab claims for frontier revisions for Palestine. France made nominal shows of support for Arab unity, but there was the little matter of France still hanging on to Algeria as an imperial possession, so, you know, they couldn't be too supportive of Arab unity. In fact, when the UK, France, and Israel all invaded Egypt, France will supplement their other justifications with, oh yeah, and Egypt is supplying rebels in Algeria with weapons and other stuff. The USA tried to play friendly as possible with the Arab states, but the USSR tried to curry favor with them by delivering modern armaments to Egypt through Czechoslovakia, and they portrayed Israel as a tool of Western imperialism in its propaganda. The USA, of course, was, and still is, pro-Israel, so this did not sit well with this superpower. So, the USA tried to be buddies with the Arab states, but its pro-Israeli stance and the Soviet Union's material and moral support for the anti-Israeli cause threatened America's interest in the Middle East. Meanwhile, France and the UK tried to get on their good side as well, but France couldn't get over Arab support for Algerian nationalism, and the UK perceived President Nasser as a hostile individual who may jeopardize freedom of passage through the Suez. What's more, for the British, Egyptian propaganda increasingly isolated Iraq, the most UK-friendly Arab state, from the rest of the Middle Eastern community, threatening its interests yet further. All of this is to say, there were several threads of tension in the Middle East and between other powers concerned with the region, and destabilizing events along any one of these threads could potentially lead to some sort of armed conflict. Hammershield had an idea to reduce the risk of conflict in general, to take the ceasefire provision from the armistice agreement between Egypt and Israel, and make it sacrosanct. 
He wanted the parties involved to make the provision an independent obligation that even breaches of other parts of the agreement would not justify violating. Israeli and Egyptian authorities assured Hammerschild that they would honor this ceasefire unconditionally, save for self-defense. Sure enough, tensions did cool for a brief period, and concerned powers considered other specific measures to take to prevent further incidents and clashing in the Middle East. Unfortunately, attempts to turn this easing of tensions into a mutual understanding and the basis for a formal peace settlement went nowhere. U.S. President Eisenhower failed to convince Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, to vigorously pursue final peace with Israel, and Hammerschild failed to do the same with Israeli Premier David Ben-Gurion. But it's not like Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal and war was immediately declared. The UK and France are seasoned veterans of imperial shenanigans and international codes of conduct. They know that you have to build up a case for going to war like a lawyer builds a defense or a prosecution. Again, Egypt nationalized the canal on July 29th. A conference convened in London representing the 24 countries most directly concerned with the affairs of the Suez Canal from August 16th through the 23rd. That is, the 24 countries most directly concerned, not including Egypt. At this conference, U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles suggested placing the canal under the control of an international board, the status of which would be defined at a subsequent conference. A policy solution which sounds sensible but disregards the sovereignty of the state upon whose territory some important resources rest. Eighteen nations represented here agreed to the plan. However, Egypt rejected this idea outright when approached regarding the plan. The USSR, India, Indonesia, and Ceylon, Sri Lanka, all rejected it as well. Side note, when discussing the nations who contributed forces to ONIC, I corrected most national names to their modern versions, but I think I missed Ceylon, Sri Lanka. Sorry, Sri Lanka. Anyway, so Egypt now rejected one totally sensible idea, quote-unquote totally sensible idea, for correcting the mess they made prematurely taking back the control of the canal, which oh so alarmed the international community. The British and French had a brilliant idea to form a Suez Canal Users Association, which supposedly had provisional U.S. support, but not really. It would employ its own pilots, collect tolls, and give Egypt, quote, appropriate payment, end quote, for its members' ships passing through the canal. Despite President Nasser rejecting the idea as, quote, an association for waging war, end quote, the association was inaugurated on October 1st. Nasser was no dummy. Well-versed in his own nation's recent history of imperial subjugation, he was fully aware of how the game was played. He could plainly see that the UK and France were building their case for war. Now, the Security Council got involved. The UK and France lodged a complaint about Egypt prematurely terminating international control of the canal, and Egypt asked the Council to consider British and French threats to peace. The Court of Global Opinion was officially in session. Egypt had prematurely terminated a legally binding international agreement again, but an armed invasion would certainly cross the line of acceptable responses. Although all members of the Security Council agreed to six basic principles for settling the matter, 
laid out by the Secretary General, the USSR vetoed the operative policy of an Anglo-French draft resolution including these principles. The US Secretary of State, Dulles, and the Secretary General were still confident despite this veto because at least the principles had been agreed upon. UK Prime Minister Anthony Eden, however, remained dissatisfied. He delivered a speech to the House of Commons in London which riled everyone up about Egypt's transgression against international order and the threat it posed to Western European security. Concerning the security, mind you again, that the majority of Western Europe's oil supply transited the Suez. This same month, October 1956, a couple events kicked off which put everyone even more on edge. On the very same day, October 23rd, Hungarians rose up in revolt against the Soviet-backed government in Budapest, and anti-French riots began to engulf Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Six days later, France accused Egypt in the Security Council of supplying arms and support to Algerian rebels. I mentioned this before. What I did not mention is that this is the very same day that Israel invaded Egypt and plunged deep into the Sinai Peninsula, that little triangular strip of land separating the rest of Egypt and Asia, and towards the Suez Canal. Here, the UK and France sprung their own master plan. With Israel and Egypt in open conflict threatening the security of the Suez Canal, they jointly issued an ultimatum to Egypt and Israel on the 30th to cease hostilities and withdraw all troops at least 10 miles away from the canal. The two European great powers announced a plan as well, whereby in order to assure free passage of vessels through the canal, Egypt should accept temporary British and French occupation of key positions at Port Said, Ismailia, and Suez. Egypt rejected the ultimatum outright, while Israel accepted it. This is because the UK, France, and Israel coordinated this all ahead of time. Israel's invasion of Egypt was a means of giving the UK and France the pretext they needed to occupy the Suez themselves and force Egypt into a new canal control scheme. Horrified by all of this, the USA called for a meeting of the Security Council also on the 30th. It wanted the Council to consider, quote, the Palestine question, steps for the immediate cessation of the military action of Israel in Egypt. The U.S. put forth a draft resolution calling upon Israel to immediately withdraw all forces from Egypt and upon all member states to, quote, refrain from the use of force or threat of force and giving any military, economic, or financial assistance to Israel so long as it has not complied with this resolution, end quote. That's something hard to imagine nowadays, the United States chastising Israel and trying to cut it off from external support. But I digress. The UK and France vetoed this draft resolution. When the Soviet Union put forward a similar draft resolution, calling upon Israel to immediately withdraw from Egypt, but not calling upon member states to refrain from force. The USSR hoped this would satisfy the UK and France, who clearly wanted the option to intervene if conflict near the canal could not be put to a halt. The UK and France vetoed it anyway. Then, less than 24 hours later, the UK and France started bombing targets in Egypt on the 31st. Anthony Eden, in a speech to the House of Commons, basically blamed Egypt, citing, quote, 
the growth of a specific Egyptian threat to the peace of the Middle East, end quote. But in reality, the intervention actually had very little to do with securing peace in the Middle East and everything to do with forcing President Nasser to compromise on the canal dispute. From another point of view, they may have hoped to prevent Egypt from becoming the leader of the Arab world and fighting against both Israel and Western colonial empires in general. One way or another, this boiled down to great powers defending their interests without regard for the people inhabiting their zones of interest. And just for the record, this sort of callous great power politicking is not exclusive to Western powers. The Empire of Japan springs to mind, but we're getting off track there. Although the UK and France figured they could hold the Suez fairly easily against Egypt alone, if other Arab states came to Egypt's defense, it would be a whole different story. Anthony Eden recognized that Anglo-French action needed to be immediate in order to keep the conflict localized. There was no hope in cleanly achieving the Anglo-French objectives if other Arab states, such as Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, got involved. Eden figured two things could prevent Syrian and Jordanese intervention. Swift Israeli military success, and the knowledge that British and French forces were en route to localize the conflict. He said that action in 24 hours may be too late, and that 48 hours certainly would be. It was a somewhat clever plan, foment a conflict that provides a pretext for intervention, and conduct the intervention in such a manner as to prevent the conflict from escalating into a larger international incident, making it look like a just intervention in the name of international peace. But it did not work out nearly as neatly as they had hoped. Rumors of collusion between Israel, France, and the UK abounded rapidly, even though no documentary evidence of such collusion was yet available to the public. The action was quickly denounced by much of the world, especially Asian states, and Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru even went so far as to say it may lead to a larger war. This statement could have been made as a matter of fact, as in, the rest of the Arab world will not stand for this, or as a threat, as in, we and other victims of imperialism are not going to tolerate this and will retaliate. It was probably meant as the former, but it's still ambiguous. The New York Herald Tribune reported that the, quote, highest American policymakers, end quote, considered the near-unfathomable idea of ordering the American Sixth Fleet to oppose Anglo-French landings on the Egyptian coast. The UK and France had both been ardent supporters of the creation of the UN alongside the United States, and agreed to the basic principle enshrined in the UN Charter that no state should resort to the use of force to achieve national objectives, no matter how fundamental. Besides this, the blatantly aggressive invasion of Egypt severely damaged the Western powers, trademarked, PR battle against Soviet imperialism. Even more frustrating, the harsh Soviet response to the Hungarian Revolution would have been a PR coup in favor of the Western powers, trademark, had the UK and France not drawn the ire of the entire world by invading Egypt. 
The United States ultimately decided against direct military intervention against the British and French, but it did make what it considered necessary moves in the event American citizens needed to be evacuated or the Soviet Union came openly to Egypt's aid. American officials believed that this would inevitably lead to war with the USSR. But back to the Security Council now, where the world's leading powers are still considering how to respond to the invasion of Egypt. Delegates of the USSR proposed that the Council authorize the USA and USSR jointly to send military units, volunteers, military instructors, and other forms of assistance to Egypt to force foreign powers to withdraw from the country. Around this same time, President Eisenhower received a letter informing him that the Soviet government believed that fighting in Egypt, quote, contains dangers of turning into a third world war, end quote. See, the Soviet Union really wanted foreigners to get the hell out of Egypt, but it also really wanted to facilitate that in a way that avoided global conflict. However, getting foreigners out of Egypt was the Soviets' top priority, and their warnings, interpreted by the West as threats of aid to Egypt, steadily escalated, eventually with the Premier emphasizing the USSR's possession of nuclear rocket weapons, and the announcement on November 7th that Soviet volunteers were ready to join the Egyptian forces. It is unclear if this was a serious statement or mere posturing. Either way, the world was frightened and the United States informed the Soviet Union that it was determined to resist any direct intervention in the Middle East. With the Security Council unable to pass any resolutions to wind down the crisis due to British and French vetoes, and the crisis threatening to spiral into a new world war, the General Assembly was called into an emergency special session under the provisions of the Uniting for Peace Resolution. We will have to stop there for now. I know it's a little unusual to end an episode in a series about peacekeeping missions without a peacekeeping mission even being established yet, but like I said at the beginning, coverage of this mission will be more of a political drama than an action sequence, and oh boy is there a lot of drama and uncertainty in the very act of creating the UN Emergency Force. Believe me, unlike the creation of Onuk, it was a long process with lots of disagreements and tough questions. Such a thing had never been created before, and the legal basis itself had to be worked out. So, I hope you will join me next time on United for Peace, as the world figures out what exactly to do about the sudden invasion of Egypt. <laughs>